Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Back to the show. Newsworthy Norisworthy podcast is a place where we try to help you navigate faith in the modern world. Now, a few weeks ago, I was at church doing the solo parenting game. My wife had uh, worked the previous night, and uh, she was working the following night, so she was uh, asleep at home. And so I was uh, with our three daughters by myself, uh, something that many of you know all too well, like that single parent game at church. Like that's you know, it's it, it takes a little bit of effort, uh, especially when you're preaching. And so this morning, preaching, three girls there, uh, they're at our spot, uh, stage right, just a few rows back, and... I finished a sermon, and before I make it all the way back, even to the third row where we're seated, the girls rush out into the outside aisle, and they greet me, and they say, hey, we need to go to the bathroom. I was like, okay, uh, go to the bathroom. And so they've been waiting the entire time. I appreciate them not saying that during the middle of the sermon while I was preaching. So they wait, and then all three of them go to the back. A few minutes later, they come back to the front where we're seated, and one of them leans over to me and goes, daddy... There are a bunch of girls crying in the bathroom. Why were they crying? And, uh, you know, I didn't interview those women. I was not in the restroom myself. Uh, like I said, it was a ladies' bathroom. Tend to not go there. And by tend, I mean I never. Um, so I don't really know the exact answer to that question. But the subject matter of what we were talking about in service that Sunday, I think, gave me enough of a clue to guess that when you talk about sexual abuse, when you talk about the way that uh, patriarchy creates environments in which women can be mistreated, and you talk about uh, that in church. Uh, unfortunately, you're going to talk to a lot of people who've had a far too real encounter with that, where it's not just an idea, it's not just a subject, it's not just a story uh, that happened thousands of years ago that has been transcribed in Scripture. It is their own story that is played out in front of them, and this story brings it back up uh, to them. And uh, so what I want to do is I actually want to play uh, that sermon um, because I think it's a, a subject matter that uh, what I am finding, even in the weeks following when I uh, preach a sermon, is that far too many people have heard far too little about this subject matter. And uh, it's a sermon that, uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll hear uh, a couple of references to a handful of uh, people who've been on the podcast. Uh, I don't say their name. I, I typically try to uh, not make the podcast too front and center in my uh, preaching, for obvious reasons. Um, but... Um, yeah, you'll hear that. And uh, so I want you to check out the sermon. And then uh, if you hang around afterwards, I'm going to do a little bit of uh, behind the scenes stuff and maybe kind of flush a few things out that I uh, kind of allude to in the podcast. And so um, check this out. And then I'll be back on the other side and we'll talk for just a few more minutes. Here we go. If you have a Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. That's 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, if you're visiting this morning, thank you for being with us today, whether in person or watching online. Uh, we're a few weeks into a series talking about the most substantial king in the Hebrew Scriptures, King David. And one of the things that we see in the life of David is something that maybe isn't always seen in the way we as Christians represent Christianity. Because sometimes people criticize Christianity and say that Christians can be, can be fake. That, that we can say one thing and then do the opposite. And unfortunately, too many times I, we have lived into that critique of Christianity. 
But what we see in Scripture is that the Bible isn't fake. That it doesn't pretend to have a group of people who always have it figured out. And what we see in Scripture is that there aren't a bunch of people who are always perfect. Today is a story in which we see those imperfections. Because we see in the life of David that this is a man who is claimed to be a man after God's own heart. But he doesn't have God's heart by any means. David is a man after God's own heart, but the story is truly a tragedy. Tragedy is often defined as someone with great potential, someone who could be a hero, but because of their own weaknesses and limitations and flaws, they become the vehicle for their own demise. And that's what we see in the story of David. And it's a reminder to each and every one of us who aren't perfect, who don't have it all figured out, who find our weaknesses and our limitations and our temptations getting the best of us, that in God's house and in God's story, there's room for you and for me. So our text today, 2 Samuel 11, and in many ways, this is the pivotal point in which David's story goes from a hero story to a tragedy. So I'm going to start 2 Samuel Chapter 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabam, but David remained at Jerusalem. So the first thing we see in this story is in the spring of the year, literally like at the turn of the year, When kings typically go out because the winter showers have stopped and there is the ability to be mobile, David is not mobile, he's sedentary. And he's sitting at home. And there's a key word that goes into this story 11 times. It's this word right here, sent. Instead of being out, David is just sending people. He will send his soldiers. He will send to have a woman that he will sexually send against. He will send out his attempt to cover it up with trickery. He will send out his orders to cover it up with murder. David is just sending. Instead of being out there. Because for David to be out there and in battle, it's not like maybe you and I see violence in battle. Because we know the teachings of Jesus. But for him, this is about him being faithful to God's command in his life. When he's a boy, he's fighting Goliath. When he's a man, he's earning the song. David has killed his tens of thousands. But here, he's something different. He's no longer the faithful boy who does whatever God commands him. Now, he's a sedentary king, sitting at home, just sending stuff out. story continues. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he sees this woman, he sends someone out to figure out, can I legally add this beautiful woman to my harem? Can I legally do this? But what he finds is this is a woman that he knows the family. Possibly Eliam is the son, and this is 
uh, speculation that he might be the son of Ahithophel, who is David's advisor. That's speculation that he might know the grandfather of Bathsheba. But without a doubt, Uriah is in one of his inner circles of soldiers. This is his special forces. A group of 30 or 37. And Uriah is one of them. And so they say, you want to know if you can legally add this woman to your hand? The answer is no. But David does what, what kings always do. David acts like a king. The king that Israel said, give us a king, give us a king. And God said, are you sure you want a king? They're just going to take from you. They're going to take your sons. They're going to take your daughters. And David just asks like, acts like a king. Let's keep reading. So David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. And he lay with her. Now, she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. He sends for her. She arrives. And there is no doubt that the child that is born is David's. He finds out. So what does he do? He, he saw, he sent for her, and now he has sinned, and he keeps on sinning. So what happens next? I think we skipped a slide here. Let's go back. What happens next is the first of his three cover-ups. He, he sees that she's pregnant, and so he sends for her husband Uriah to come home. He's supposed to come home, and David says, welcome back from battle. Uriah has been in the middle of the fight. David welcomes him home and says, hey, why don't you go wash your feet and go home? But Uriah the Hittite, a non-Jew, says, I, I can't go sleep in my own bed while my men and the Ark of the Covenant are off at battle. And so he sleeps outside his own home. This non-Jew has more honor than the king of the Jews. He sleeps outside, so cover-up number one doesn't work. So cover-up number two, he decides to do what many people want to do when they want to make bad decisions. They just add alcohol to it. Brings him back, hey, hey, why don't you drink up? Maybe a few more glasses. Keeps pouring. But what happens is Uriah, even when he is drunk on wine, has more honor than David when he is drunk on power. He still sleeps outside. And then cover up number three. David knows Uriah has so much character and integrity and honor that he writes a letter telling his commander to kill him. And you know what he does? He gives it to Uriah and says, hey, you send this to the commander off the battle. Here's the text. Let's go to the next one. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, this is his commander, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fight and then draw back for him so that he may be struck down and die. Joab, the commander, knows David's game. He's seen it. He understands it. He knows how things work. And so he does what the king commands. They're in the middle of a battle. Leaves him out by himself. 
one of David's inner circle closest soldiers, is left alone and he dies. Bathsheba finds out, and this is what happens at the end of the story. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. The man after God's own heart, the king that Israel said, hey, give us one just so we can be like everyone else. God said, you don't want a king. They say, we want a king, and this is the king that they get. This is the king they get. A couple months ago, I was uh, talking with a friend, and he mentioned a um, somewhat well-known Christian apologist who had passed away. And before this Christian apologist had passed away, there were rumors about his sexual impropriety, about sexual abuse that had kind of followed him around for, for many years. Uh, after his death, it was reported that this Christian apologist owned a massage parlor and multiple employees of this massage parlor accused him of sexual assault. Now, I didn't particularly find this guy's work super compelling. It wasn't someone I really read or followed or listened to much at all. And so I'm talking to my friend about this, and he says, what if, and then he inserted the name of someone that I do like, I do listen to a lot of his work, I do follow a lot of his teaching, but I'm not going to say his name because this is being recorded. He said, what if so-and-so was found to have massage parlors and that he had abused his employees? And I was devastated for a second just thinking about that. Like this guy that I look up to, he's a teacher that I admire. You've heard me quote him multiple times. Like I can't imagine if that was him. Back in February, I read through the story of David again as I was getting ready for the series. I know how the story of David goes. I've read it multiple times throughout my life. But when I read it again back in February, I was struck by one thing. Up until this moment in the life of David... He was the person that everyone would have looked up to. And up until this point, he was so good. And when I read the story, I, I was shocked. Like, I know the story, but I was shocked because this is, this is David. He is the Lord's anointed. He was beloved by Israel. He was respected by just about everyone. But he saw, he sent and he sinned, and he sinned, and he sinned. It didn't make any sense. Like, this is just not who David is supposed to be. I was shocked. The past year, a well-known preacher, uh, quite publicly, was uh, found out to be uh, sinning sexually uh, with a adult person, not sexual abuse, but still sin, but he was having an affair. He stepped down from his post at this uh, prominent church. He posts about it online, on social media, hundreds of messages, people who were saying positive things to him. Hey, this is just a setback for your comeback, right? You're going to get through this. This is just going to give you a good testimony, a good story. And a lot of these people were people like me who just knew him from afar for the most part. But then there's one comment by a person who I knew was right in the middle of the situation. 
who knew the story, who knew the people involved. Her comment was, I'm not going to sit here and condone it. You were dealt a good hand, and you just misplayed it. I'm not going to sit here and condone it. You were dealt a good hand, and you just misplayed it. David was dealt an amazing hand. He saw, and he sent, and he sinned, and he sinned, and he sinned. He just misplayed it. And it makes no sense. Many have been dealt a good hand, or a decent hand, or even not such a good hand. And you still just misplayed it. For in a moment you saw something and it seemed good, but you just just misplayed it. Taylor Swift has a song called uh, Illicit Affairs, which... I couldn't get the band to play this week, sorry. <laughs> and there's this line, which a song about illicit affairs. She describes it as a dwindling mercurial high. Mercurial, it's, it's volatile, kind of up and down, you never know, but it's, it's always dwindling. Right? How, how many of them dealt a hand? Maybe it was great, maybe it was okay, maybe it was not so good, but you still misplayed it for this dwindling, mercurial high. That maybe was somewhat good at the beginning, it just gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and that's David's life right here. That same Christian preacher who had the affair, uh, his mistress was interviewed, and she said, this happened all during COVID, and he wasn't preaching. So he just missed it. I was like, I, I mean... I miss preaching too, but uh, but there's something to that. Like when you're supposed to be doing something, when you're, you're like David, you're supposed to be going out to battle, and you're not doing what you're created to do. Often we do what we're not created to do. Like, this is who you're supposed to be, and you're not doing it. And so what you end up doing is what you're not supposed to do. In, in Luke chapter four, uh, Jesus has been tempted, and then it says in the text that the devil left Jesus for a more opportune time. There are few times more opportune for us to see, to send, and to sin and sin and sin when, than when we are doing what we're not supposed to do. That's when affairs often happen. But I, I, don't, I don't know if what David did should really be classified as an affair, though. Should it? Is that really the word to use to describe what David, David did? We've got a problem with lenses that make us read stories in peculiar ways back then, and we still do. Is that the right word? Affair? Remember the 1990s when uh, President Bill Clinton was impeached for very unpresidential behavior? Do you remember the name of the scandal? Do you remember what we called that? Do you remember what we called that? Because I do. And it's peculiar to me. Because what we have is a woman who came to the White House as a 21-year-old unpaid intern. At the time when the sexual impropriety took place, she was 22. And he is the, a 49-year-old man who's the most powerful person in the world. Yet we call the scandal her name? Does that make sense to anyone else? 
She's the punchline of late night talk show hosts. She's a joke that everyone wants to just throw around, but she's 22. She's an unpaid intern. He's a 49-year-old man who's the most powerful person in the world, yet we call it her name. And you wonder why we think the story of David is just an affair. Was it an affair? Months ago when I was writing this series, I was trying to figure out how to talk about this text. I talked to a friend of mine who's a, um, a biblical scholar in Tennessee, so, you know, what does that mean? Uh, just kidding. <laughs> and so her take on this is that, uh, you know, Bathsheba is a military kid. Her dad's in the military. Her husband's in the military. She knows how this thing works. So she's out on the rooftop and she's playing the game. And so maybe she's being Machiavellian and trying to work her way up. Except there's only one problem. If, if you look at the text, look at verse 2 again. It happened late one evening when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. There's nothing about her being on her rooftop. She's taking a bath. The only person that we know is on the roof, able to look down, is the king. And the king is just doing king stuff. Bathsheba's not doing seductress stuff. He's just acting like a king. And he's not the first one to act like this in scripture. Remember the story in Genesis? God told Abram and Sarah, hey, you're going to go and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you wherever you go. But Abraham gets scared Because this is going to happen. This is Genesis chapter 12. Let me read this story about how kings act. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you're my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you. Don't worry about yourself, but let's just focus on me here. And that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. That's just how kings act. Kings just being kings. And David was no better. No matter what you think of this story, look at the life. Look at how he ended his life. Let me read this to you from the book of Kings. King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. We're talking in metaphors here, people. So his servant said to him, Let a young virgin be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be his attendant. Let her lie in your bosom. This is the same language that the prophet Nathan criticizes and calls David out on his behavior with Bathsheba in a parable in 2 Samuel 12. Let her lie in your bosom so that my Lord the King may be warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She became the king's attendant and served him, but the king did not know her sexually. He's trying to say that he's got an issue that a pill hadn't yet been created to solve, but this was their solution. Let's just get a young, young, beautiful virgin. 
That's just what kings do. So when Israel said, give us a king, God said, are you sure you want a king? Because they act just like this. And so we've preached the story telling our teenage girls how to dress. Oh, don't, don't wear a crop top, don't wear short dresses, because you don't want to end up like Bathsheba. But we never want to ask the harder question, what about those of us who are acting like David? Oh, let's, let's talk about Bathsheba. Let's talk about Monica Lewinsky. Let's talk about, but we don't want to talk about the king. Men make up 49% of the United States population. But 85% of sexual abuse happens because of men. But we want to talk about Monica Lewinsky and Bathsheba. One in three women will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. One in six men. But what we want to talk about is crop tops and short skirts and not talk about the root of the problem. Because what happens is you have people that we look up to and say, we're supposed to trust you. We're supposed to put our lives into your hands, but we don't want to talk about what happens when we put our lives in their hands. David was looked up to. Everyone loved him. This is the king that we're going to pattern everything off of. But this is what he does. Most of us in this room who have been sexually assaulted, according to statistics, have been sexually assaulted by someone that we trust. By family, by friends, by someone you would never expect to do it. You're shocked. Years after I lived in Philadelphia, actually I was in college at the time, but I heard that the preacher from the church that I grew up in was arrested and incarcerated for sexual assault against an adolescent at my church that I grew up in. I was shocked because this is the person we're supposed to trust and believe in. This story is not about Bathsheba acting like some seductress. This is a story about kings acting like kings. And you don't have to have a crown to act like a king. One of my friends named Sarah Barton is a chaplain at Pepperdine University. Years before she was at Pepperdine, she was a missionary in Uganda, in East Africa. And she was teaching the women in this village uh, of the women of the Bible. So she talked about Deborah, she talked about Miriam, she talked about Mary, she talked about Martha. She's doing this class for these women in Uganda. And a few weeks into it, before she starts that week's class, she asks a question. She asks, which of the, the women in the Bible do you like the most? Which of these women in the Bible do you like the most? And in that culture, unlike our culture, the response is not for individual hands to go up and someone to express their individual opinion. What, what they did was they kind of circled up, and in their language, they talked amongst themselves because they weren't going to answer individually but collectively. And Sarah's uh, language skills were somewhat mediocre, so she couldn't really understand what they were saying. 
But she noticed all the eyebrows go up in agreement when one person said one name. And then, collectively, they turned to Sarah and they said, the woman we like the most is Bathsheba. Now, Sarah was confused because Sarah didn't say anything about Bathsheba in this class. She's a part of a scandalous story. Probably wasn't going to be brought up naturally in this series for Sarah. Kind of a somewhat minor character in the Bible. So she was confused. And so she asked these women, why, why do you guys like Bathsheba so much? And they said, because they understand what it's like to be in a relationship in which you don't have choice. When a relationship isn't based on romance or your preference or your sexual desire. One woman spoke up and told a story of her being raped one evening. Someone broke in through a window, raped her. And the next day, her brother made this man marry her. So we, we like Bathsheba because we, we can understand what it means to be in a relationship when it's not based on your, your choice or your desire. They know what it's like to be in a polygamous relationship. They said if, if you're going to be a, a co-wife, you at least want to be a successful co-wife. And that's what Bathsheba was. They said we like Bathsheba because we know what it's like to lose a child, which is ultimately what happens to Bathsheba with this child in this story from David. They say we like Bathsheba because it reminds me of my story. There are far too many of us who this story isn't just a story that's distant and from the past and it's about things back in Israel's day, but it's a story that reminds you of you and your day. Where you're one of those one in three women or you're one of those one in six men. And you know the story is not about crop tops and short dresses. You know the story is about what happens when what resides in the human heart is given power and authority And others get stripped of their dignity and their choice. And if that's you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way that we in the church have sometimes shamed you for being a victim. For saying, hey, you shouldn't address like that. But let me say this as clear as I can. No matter how short the dress is or how low the top is, it doesn't say I deserve to have my dignity and my innate value stripped from me. Doesn't mean it. I'm sorry. What it also means is I'm sorry for the way that those of us have enabled king culture. Joab, David's commander, knew what he was doing. And he didn't say anything. Because he's the king. Just let him do his thing. We're going to kill him for whatever reason. David sends for her. Hey, who is this? Send her to me. Oh, bring her here. He's not talking to himself. There are people around him who are just going, okay, yeah, I'll go with it. Yeah, I'm just going to be silent and let this happen. Because he's the king. Some of us have continued to be silent and go, well, that's them. It's, who am I to say? We've been silent too. 
And for that, I say I'm sorry. For that, I say we're sorry. And all those who agree say amen. All those who agree say we are sorry. We are sorry. Because the story of Bathsheba isn't just her story. It's far too many of our stories. And the point of the story is not about how you're supposed to dress. The point of the story is who you're supposed to have as your king. Israel says, hey, give us one of those kings. God says, if if you want a king, they're going to take your sons and they're going to take your daughters. Oh, cool, that's fine. We're good with it. The point of the story is that God is supposed to be the only one who's king. Because when you live with someone else's king, they just do as the world works. Oh, this is how the world, we're just going to do that, but I'm going to be the one who benefits from it. Genesis 3, God says, this is what happens when you step outside of my will for you. There are consequences. And this is what, what God says to Eve. Let me read this to you from Genesis 3. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Up until then, work was not hard. And the relationship between man and woman was not one over the other. But the consequence of sin is that relationship is broken and the power all of a sudden has one over the other. This is not how it's supposed to be. It's the way of the world. But there is good news is that Jesus is king and things are different. If you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Let me read this to you from Galatians chapter 3. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. When you have joined the family of God, and you have made your profession in the waters of baptism that you believe Jesus is the Christ. And again, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the new David that we've all been waiting for. And when Jesus is king and you live into the kingdom of God, what happens is Jew and Greek, slave or free, male nor female, no longer exist in the way it did before. There is still race, there is still socioeconomic classes, there is still gender, but the division between them no longer exists. In the kingdom of God, you're now one in Christ. And all the divisions that existed before are no longer there. So you and I, more than anything else, need Jesus to be king. Because in Jesus' kingdom, there is good news for each and every one of us. No matter where we are in the story, there is good news for you. Now there's some of us, who have had affairs, and you want Jesus to be king for this one reason, because when Jesus is king, the most important thing that has ever happened in your past is not what you have done wrong, but what Jesus has done to make you right. You want Jesus to be king because there is grace for you. And if you've acted like David, and the sexual sin in your life is not consensual adult sin, but there is abuse, And you have acted like David. You want Jesus to be king because there is grace for you too. There is grace for you. And if your story is far more like Bathsheba's, you want Jesus to be king 
Because in the kingdom of God, what has been stripped away from you is reinstilled. Let me read this to you from Matthew's Gospel. This is how Jesus is introduced into the world in Matthew's Gospel. And I want you to notice there are four names that don't make sense in this genealogy, but they were forced into the genealogy so that you and I do not miss these four women. Let me read this to you. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Neshon, and Neshon the father of Salom, and Salom the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Ovid by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Number four, you have four women who by most accounts we know are not Jewish women, they are Gentiles. Every one of them are women whose lives are noted by scandal. Yet most of all, each and every one of these women are Jesus' great-grandmothers. Because in the kingdom of God, what has been stripped away from you, God reinstills and says, you can't be put aside. You're not just a minor character. You're not someone who's forgotten and overlooked. And you're not just an object of someone's desire that they can send for you and do what they want with you. In the kingdom of God, God says, I will build this kingdom with you in the center of it. Because you matter. You matter. Uriah's name means God is my light. And God is the one who brings light into your darkness. What sin has stripped away from you, God reinstills. May Jesus be your king. Because there is good news for each and every one of us. Whether we have been someone who enabled king culture with our silence. Whether we have hurt other people by abusing positions that we are in. By abusing trust and respect that we have. Or whether we are, we are the victims of abuse, there's good news. Let's do a little behind-the-scenes stuff now about that sermon. Uh, there's going to be a few names that you probably recognize if you've been listening to the podcast for a while. Um, there's a few uh, allusions to actually the podcast that uh, we go into a little bit more detail on here than I do in the actual sermon. Uh, I try to keep a little distance between uh, my preaching and the podcast because like the last thing I ever want to do is to make it feel like I'm like promoting my podcast in a sermon. Um, and so I'm more reticent to mention it than, um, you know, and maybe I need to meet, but nevertheless, um, uh, first thing, uh, Sarah Barton, uh, is the, the missionary I talked about. Uh, many of you know Sarah Barton from uh, her work at Pepperdine. And so when I was writing this sermon, I remember emailing her, uh, this is months and months ago. And I said, Hey, Sarah, uh, your keynote was great uh, that you did at Harbor. I don't know what year it was, maybe 2018, 19, something like that. Uh, so would you mind sending me the manuscript uh, for that sermon? And so she did. She's very generous uh, as always. And uh, one of the things I loved about uh, her sermon was the phrase uh, king culture, uh, because the idea of letting a king act like a king only happens if there are people who are willing to go along with it. And obviously, David's commander went along with it. The messengers went along with it, and they didn't have a choice. They would have been killed if they just stood up for the king. And one of the things that we see with, you know, like Harvey Weinstein is an example of people 
uh, around him who just l- let him do what he wanted to do. And they didn't speak up. They're too quiet. And it didn't, it didn't stop until people were willing to speak out against King Culture. And as we've seen over the last handful of years, people who are willing to speak up and, and speak to what's happened in churches is why uh, so many of these conversations are happening that people are not willing to be silent and complicit any longer. So I really uh, appreciated that from her. Now, one of the things that uh, there's some debate over is the actual word to describe what happened. And I was very reticent to say that, you know, David committed adultery because I don't think it's fair to say it's adultery. And that's one of the things that that Sarah just personally has helped me uh, to to make that observation. But some will even use the language of rape uh, to describe what David did to Bathsheba. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't use that word, not because I would feel like it's, it's, it's wrong, but maybe because I, I don't even know that concept even existed back then. And I, I just didn't feel at that time it was a word that I wanted to use. Uh, another uh, person that you, uh, you might have recognized from the podcast is actually a conversation I had about this very text uh, that was on the podcast probably back in maybe December of uh, 2020 with uh, Dr. A.J. Levine, the theologian from Tennessee, specifically the University of Vanderbilt. And uh, on the podcast, she talked about uh, saying Bathsheba was this military kid who knew how the system was working, and she might be the most Machiavellian character in Scripture. Um, And I actually was planning on playing a clip from that actual podcast as I originally uh, kind of scheduled out the sermon and sketched it out in my head. Uh, And you can even, if you go back and listen to that podcast, you can hear me saying that. Um, And so my original idea was to say, like three different reads on this. The first being adultery. The second is uh, more of like the rape that Bathsheba was forced to do this. And the third angle is that Bathsheba was this Machiavellian character. And so I, I was planning on doing that. But the lo- the more I looked at this text, the more I uh, read commentaries, the more I talked to friends, uh, friends of mine here in Austin, uh, who I trust a great deal, uh, none of them really went along with it. And uh, by they went along with it, I, my reading of scripture didn't go along with what AJ was saying. And while I know that she is uh, far uh, more respected uh, reader of scripture than myself, and I kind of hold her opinion over my opinion for the most part because I, I trust where she's coming from, it just didn't make sense to me. And so I kind of sidestepped that one um, because I didn't, I, I didn't see Bathsheba playing the seductress as much as some might. And I think if you play that card then I think some aren't going to be willing to listen to the more prophetic word that needed to be spoken about the way that we enable king culture. Uh, there's some weird thing that happens with one of the verbs about Bathsheba and David and like a preposition. And uh, if you're really big into uh, theological commentaries, I think it's in the, the altar Bible commentary. It kind of flushes out a little bit about that. And so there's, there's something there that I'm not saying is completely wrong, but what I do know is that... Um, uh, it's complicated to uh, to make that read. So I think what I did in the sermon was probably um, required less of a jump than I think it would take me to get there. Uh, third podcast reference uh, is uh, obviously the Carl Lentz story, and you know we talked about in the podcast um, the uh, the woman who who posted on Instagram. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean it's on Instagram. It's not like I'm hiding anything. We've talked about it, but. Um, yeah, I mean, that one stuck with me for, I guess it's been a year or so, and uh, I think the thing about the David story is that it has so many layers that you can see someone who just had an affair and, and misplayed a good hand in it, and that's the thing about Scripture is that there's so many layers to stories, and to say that there's like just one right read isn't 
maybe the right way to do it, but you don't think that your read is always the actual facts of what took place. And so if you want to read in the story that, you know, there's a guy who had a great hand dealt to him and he had an affair and screwed it up. Yeah, I think you can see it in the David story, but I also think that there's so many more layers to the David story than just that. And, um, yeah, anyway, um, if you want to guess who the theologian was that I mentioned that, um, uh, I didn't want to say his name for obvious reasons, obviously it's, it's Tom Wright. And, you know, someone said that to me actually before a podcast and, Hey, what if, uh, what if it wasn't Robbie Zachariah, but what if it was Tom Wright? What would that do for your soul? Like that, that really disturbed me. And, uh, I think that's what this whole David story would have done for everyone else, uh, in the, uh, Israel, Israelite community when they heard it. And I think that's part of the power of the story is that this doesn't happen by someone who was assumed to be a villain the entire time. Th- this isn't a bad guy that people knew to be bad, but this is a person that everyone knew to be good. And I think that speaks to just how corrupt a world can be when it is structured outside of what God wants it to be. And when you create kings, all of a sudden king culture is going to creep in. Even if you think that person would have been the one good king, it turns out that there's a reason God said you're not supposed to have kings. And I think that speaks to the way that we elevate and empower people. Sometimes it just doesn't work out, not because they are inherently worse than us, but because uh, every one of us has something inside of us pulling us away from God's intention for us, and we all need to own up to that. Uh, now, let me just say this, um, you know, for all my listeners who connect to this in the way that um, uh, far too many do, that it's not just a story that you uh, think, oh, that's a, you know, that's an interesting story from the past, but you go, this is part of my past, and the story of Bathsheba is, uh, is far too akin to my story. Uh, again, I just want to say I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. And my heart breaks for you, and it, um, yeah, it's terrifying. Uh, someone reached out to me after the podcast because of uh, of uh, of a choice I use for pronouns when I said for for those of us, and I use the word us in here uh, who've experienced sexual abuse. Uh, I, I was using that word as uh, more like a collective identity that we have as as God's people, not as someone who was. Uh, a survivor, uh, someone who's uh, experiences trauma. So I'm not trying to say I know what it's like, but what I'm trying to say is that uh, there are people who love and support and and want to be there for you and want to identify with you, not as though they know exactly what it's like, but they want to identify someone who's got your back. And so, uh, again, if this is you, uh, my heart breaks for you, and um, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. Uh, friends, I do appreciate listening to the podcast, and... Um, We'll talk to you soon. All the best. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.